0: Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We are going to continue our study through the book of Revelation. This is sermon or study uh, time number three. Uh, And the focus... Of Revelation. I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page here. The focus of Revelation, and you'll notice that that word is in the singular, it's not revelations, but Revelation. The focus is to reveal Jesus Christ as Lord and God to the saved and also to an unsaved world. But I do remind you that this book, according to chapter 1, verse 1, Says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. So, this book is for the saved the revealing of Jesus Christ, so that we who are saved know him in his completeness. And we also can come to know Him in that complete way so that we are even more filled with a passion to serve Him and to go into the world to bring others to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be His witnesses in a world that one day is going to pass away. Uh, And we are in those days when we need to be busy for Him. Now, in Revelation, we see an awesome picture of the Savior And it is very different from the picture that we see of the suffering servant in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A very different picture. The Apostle John had preached Christ in the Roman Empire. And he was arrested and he was punished. And his punishment was to go to the Alcatraz of his day, which was an island in the Aegean Sea uh, called Patmos. And on Patmos, he was going to live out the great remainder of his life. But one Sunday, while he was on that prison island of Patmos, God caught him up and took him to show him the very throne room of heaven. And John is told to write what he sees and to send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which today is present-day Turkey. Now, the first vision in this throne room, the first vision of John is the very image of Jesus as the risen Savior. What he saw in Jesus in that throne room vision... was very different from the man that he knew and walked with and loved when he was a disciple walking with Jesus on this earth. I want you to be reminded that some 60 years had passed since he had seen Jesus die on the cross, resurrected from the grave, when he walked with him by the Sea of Galilee. And instead of a man who had on homemade and simple garments, instead of a man who was a carpenter by trade, John... ...sees his Lord as mighty Savior. When he saw him by the Sea of Galilee teaching and preaching, he was uh, a servant. He was the Son of Man and the servant of man. However, when John sees him now, he sees a mighty judge in a flowing robe... ...with a gold belt that's around his chest. Instead of the dark hair of the Jewish man that he served with and walked with... Uh, by the Sea of Galilee, he sees the mighty judge who has a hair that now is white as snow with the purity that only God can have. Instead of Jesus' feet being in sandals as they were in the days when he preached around Jerusalem, now John's vision is Jesus with feet of brass, which simply signifies that his judgment uh, and his coming could not be stopped. Uh, Brass signifies that it's an unstoppable thing that is going to happen. Instead of that voice that John heard as we read about it in the Gospels, and I told you last week that I believe Jesus had a very strong voice in order to be able to uh, speak to 5,000 people. I believe Jesus had a a very strong voice as a human being. Uh, However, when Jesus spoke, uh, when he was walking the soil of this earth, many heard him. But also many walked away. Many decided not to hear him. It was their decision. However, as John sees him in this vision as the risen Lord, uh, John hears a voice that is as mighty as the oceans roll so that when Jesus speaks... No one will be able to turn him away or turn him off or walk away from him. This is a voice that is going to be heard. There's only one option when Jesus speaks as the risen Lord. He will be heard, and that is true for the saved as well as for the scoffer. Everyone, saved and unsaved alike, will hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Also, here's a question on the sheet, I believe. Out of his mouth proceeds a two-edged sword. One edge of that sword cuts to bless the saved, and one edge of that sword serves to uh, judge the lost. So the two edges, each edge meaning something, proceeding from his mouth. That's the mighty word of God. Jesus is the one who's going to speak judgment to this world, so that's why the sword proceeds from his mouth. Now, this image of Jesus Christ as God and ruler and judge strikes John to the point that he does something in utter reverence. John falls in fear at the feet of Jesus, the risen Lord. And Scripture says that he fell at his feet as though he were dead. Can't you just picture the Apostle John spread eagle with his nose on the ground before the mighty king, the risen judge, Can you even begin to imagine what must have been coursing through John's mind as he laid prostrate, could not get his nose off of the ground? What was going through John's mind when he laid before the mighty king, Jesus Christ? He was absolutely overwhelmed, I believe, at the awesome power that he sees now. You know, in his mind, he thinks about the Savior that he walked with. He thinks about the Lord that he laid his head on his chest uh, at that supper. He thinks about the Lord that he saw dying on the cross. And if you remember, in the moments that Jesus was dying on the cross, he entrusted the care of his own mother to his disciple, John. John took her home that very hour as Jesus was dying on the cross. He thinks about seeing him uh, in resurrection, But he's absolutely overwhelmed now, I believe, at the awesome power as he compares the two pictures in his mind. As Jesus, the suffering servant on the cross, and Jesus, the risen Lord, who is not going to be stopped in coming again and in judgment. So his his mind is going through this transition from suffering servant to risen, powerful, mighty, judging Lord He sees two pictures and he realizes that the more real picture is the picture of the Lord who's going to come in judgment. That's true for us tonight. You know, I have to admit to you, as I think about Jesus, my first thought is Jesus uh, in that one set of clothes or Jesus on the cross or Jesus preaching to the multitudes. But tonight, the more real picture is the Jesus who is coming again, the risen Lord, the risen King who went to sit at the right hand of God the Father when he ascended to heaven. Now, I'm sure that as John laid before the Christ, he also thought, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen at this point He thought before the Lord at this point probably the very same thought that Moses had when he saw the holiness of God at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 it says, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. He was afraid to look upon God. Why was he afraid? The fear was because he was a sinful man And God's holiness is absolutely burning and bright and so true that we can't look upon that kind of holiness as sinful human beings. But as John lay trembling before Jesus, the risen Christ, Jesus, the judge, Jesus with the white hair of purity, Jesus with the robes of royalty, as he laid before that risen Christ and that judge, Something happened that reminded him of his days of being a disciple 60 years before. Jesus laid his hand on John. That was a familiar touch. And John had longed for that touch for some six decades. And that touch calmed his fear. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. We're going to close out chapter 1 tonight... So that as we begin the study, next time we meet uh, for the study, we're going to be looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. But tonight, look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore amen and have the keys of hell and death I believe some of Jesus most important words to his people remember these words of the book of Revelation are directed to those who are saved I believe some of the most important words that he speaks to us are the same words that he spoke to John do not be afraid So many of us, myself included, maybe myself leading the pack, so many of us live in so many different kinds of fears and anxieties and dreads about what's going to happen, but Jesus tells us words that cross the ages, we don't have to be afraid. If you remember, the angels said that to the shepherds in the field on the night of Jesus' birth. Jesus spoke those words many times as he taught about the love of God. If God loves you and you know that love, you don't have to be afraid. Uh, I love the words that are captured in Jesus' comfort to his disciples in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And I use these words so often, especially in funeral services, to give comfort to a family that's bearing the hurt and the grief of loss. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's verse 1 of John 14. And then the 27th verse of that uh, chapter, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be troubled afraid. You know, one of the things that I especially say, and I believe it and I think about it, I, I thought about it in my own parents' funerals, is though our hearts burn with grief and hurt, that this one we've lost is gone from us while we tear up and cry. Yet we don't have to be afraid because for the believer who goes on before us, we know where they are. They're not lost We know they're with the Lord. It's our physical loss we deal with and our physical grief because they're not with us, but we're not afraid. We have no fear because we know they're home. We know they're with the Lord, and that takes fear away from us. It's a very important theme because uh, we're going to hear of extremely fearful things that are coming in this book. When Jesus says to John, Don't be afraid. Those are words that address the entirety of this book because there are some very fearful things that we're going to study in these sessions that are ahead. However, for every believer in the Lord, we don't have to be afraid because we know who is in control. Believers don't have to be fearful. You know, I I can't speak for you, but I can say that these words minister to me. I need to hear them, that I don't have to be afraid about any of life's circumstances because the Lord is taking care of me and and taking care of my family and my church family. Uh, Just quite frankly, I'm afraid too often, and I don't need to be because the Lord is in control, and He says, I don't have to be afraid. Uh, One of the leading benefits of Jesus Christ as Savior is that He delivers us from fear. And I believe, you know, the, the word that describes our growth as a Christian, when we're saved, that moment we're saved, that's justification. But then we begin this path of growth where every day we should be growing closer to the Savior, and that's called sanctification. And I believe in the process of sanctification, as we grow to know and be more like the Savior every day, we learn more and more that we can fear less and less. The closer we get to the Savior, the more we know we don't have to be fearful of anything or any situation or any person because the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and in control. From the beginning of time, the principal fear of the human race, this is on your sheet, the principal fear of the human race is the fear of death. Satan addresses that fear with Eve in the garden when he says eat this forbidden fruit and Eve says no because if I eat it God says I will die and of course Satan says oh Eve Eve you're not going to die God just told you that because he don't he doesn't want you to be as wise as he is Naaman great story about a Gentile man came to God's prophet Elisha 2nd Kings chapter 5 the reason uh elisha was able to minister to naaman is because naaman had leprosy and feared dying job was tempted to forsake god in the face of his own impending death multitudes came to jesus of galilee i believe in fear of their future and fear of death if you'd like to turn with me you can or just listen to this verse it's mark six thirty-four. write that down Mark 6:34 says, "And Jesus when he came out saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things." Now, I've never been a shepherd. But what little bit I've read about what little bit I know about sheep, is sheep require a shepherd. Without a shepherd, sheep are very very easily scattered and very easy prey to any animal that would want to kill them sheep need a shepherd sheep need a shepherd for protection sheep need a shepherd for direction sheep need a shepherd in order to stay in uh, a close proximity of one another if they don't have a shepherd they scatter and move out and are gone and are by themselves in enemy territory so jesus said these people to whom i'm ministering are like sheep without a shepherd and one of their principal problems is they're fearful of their life and fearful of death. But he says to us, his church, his precious people, you, you and I don't have to be afraid of death because he says, I hold the keys of Hades or hell and death. Now, Hades and hell, basically interchangeable terms because if a person goes there, they will die for all eternity. It's an active death for all eternity. But they die in Hades, in hell, forever and ever and ever. Those two terms being somewhat interchangeable. You and I as believers do not have to worry about an eternity there. Because of Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus saying, I am in control. Jesus says, I have the keys. I have them. They are mine. I earn them I am the one who has the right to own those keys. He owns them because He died for those keys. He died for that key to our life. He conquered death through the resurrection. He is alive forevermore. And He will share that eternal life with anyone who will come to Him in faith. We don't work our way to the kingdom, we don't pay our way to the kingdom. But the only way we can come to Jesus is by saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Uh, I am unworthy, but I'm asking you by your grace to forgive me and to save me. And Jesus can and will do that because he owns the keys. And he is the only one who does. He is the way, the truth, the life, the owner of the keys. And he's the only one who can give us life. This world doesn't want to believe that. But that is the absolute truth that's shown to us through the Word of God. Now, of course, most of you all know that I'm an avid uh, Andy Griffith fan. And, uh, you know, I love the jail in, in Mayberry. There are two, cell, two cells in the jail. Uh, and there's a brick post between the two jail cells. And the keys to the cells hang on that post so that any prisoner can just reach through the bars and grab the keys and unlock the door for himself. Uh, unlike Mayberry, the keys of death and hell belong to Jesus and are accessed only by Him. They are not within the reach of the unsaved. They're not within the reach of the lost. But Jesus is willing to unlock the door of heaven to anyone who would come to Him in faith. He holds our future and He knows the span of our life Of course, it teaches us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, that he knows the hairs of our head. For some of you, that's a very simple process. (laughs) But in saying that, if Jesus knows the number of hairs on our head, he also knows the number of our days. He knows the number of days that we have on this earth. That's a fact that you and I do not know. But he holds the key of our future. And he holds the key of our life. And because he is in control, our freedom uh, is not to worry about death. But rather, our freedom is to be excited about life. And our freedom is to be able to go into the world as witnesses for the one who holds the keys and to invite others to come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, look at verse 19. Revelation 1:19. Jesus says to John, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. This is John's writing assignment from God. This verse gives a very simple outline to the entire book of Revelation. John is to write about three things. Number one, he is to write about the vision of the Savior, which we have been and are studying tonight. The second thing, he is to write a letter to each one of the seven churches in Asia, and we will begin that study the next time that we meet to study Revelation. And then thirdly, he will be writing prophecy that reveals what is to come in our future as believers and at the end of the age of the world. That's the entire overview and uh, outline for the book of the Revelation. Now tonight we're closing chapter 1 and we're left with this picture of the mighty Savior who rules both life and death. He has the keys of life. He has the keys over death. A Savior who is in control. Now look at verse 20, the last verse of chapter 1. The mystery of Are the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, if you were with me in a prior study, if you remember the angels of the churches, an angel of God never pastored a church. This is a reference, and an angel means messenger. Uh, in the original language so these are the messengers or the pastors the elders of those seven churches send the letters to the elders to the pastors of the seven churches but what I want you primarily to notice uh, is that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, holds it all He is in the midst of the candlesticks. He is in the midst of the churches. He is the one who holds the seven stars uh, in his right hand. He is in the midst of the golden candlesticks. So he is the Savior who is in control of the ministry of the church. Now, I also want to say this to you. I I believe this about the church. Uh, And being a pastor of 30 years, I've seen a church Uh, that is truly striving to grow to be surrendered to the Lord we can we can do ministry in one of two ways we can say Lord we're smart enough to figure out our own plans and our own programs and our own way to go into the world or Lord I need to be like John and be prostrate before you with my nose to the ground saying tell us Lord the next step that we are to take as your ministry and as your church And of course, you know that in order for us to be the people of God that He wants us to be, we have to be totally surrendered to His will and to the ways that He would have us to reach out to the world. Uh, You know, we might have in this day and age, as we come up on the Christmas season, we might have stores and malls and towns who have knocked Jesus out of Christmas. Jesus is no longer in the middle of the Christmas season in our country. Do you believe that? He's no longer in the middle of the Christmas celebration. S- sorrowfully, to t- I tell you, Walmart is in the middle of the Christmas season. Uh, and all of the big box stores and all of the selling and all of the buying, that's in the middle of the Christmas season. But friends, listen to this. All of heaven revolves around the Lamb. Our Christmas no longer revolves around the Savior, but all of heaven, as he is revealed in Revelation, shows us revolves around Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're going to learn more and more about that. For the true saved child of God, our lives should revolve around him. Tonight, I pray that we can allow some worries and some fears to be given up to the savior because he is worthy. He is willing to carry them from us. Sometimes we need to just come before the Lord and say, "Lord, help me not be crippled by my past fears and my past life and my past anxieties, but rather I pray that you will lift me up tonight because you hold the keys of my future. Help me just faithfully day by day give myself to you." So tonight, we're forgiven if you're a believer. And tonight we're freed that we might save him because he is the one who holds the keys to all of the future. As a church tonight, I pray that we will just let go and let God allow him to use us however he sees fit. Uh, We are strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow him. My last word tonight as we close chapter 1, as we will begin the study of the seven letters with our next session, my last word is always there may be someone in this sanctuary who has never met this Savior. He is a powerful, mighty Savior who holds the keys to your future. And the key to your future is to simply say, Lord, I need you as my Savior. I want your eternal life, I want your forgiveness. I come to you in sorrow and repentance for my sin. And I ask you, Lord, to bless me, save me, keep me, use me in your ministry and keep me in heaven for all eternity when it's my time to go home. Tonight, our prayers, if there's one person here who's never made that decision, that this is the moment that you simply invite him into your life. Well, as we close chapter one, we know the Lord is a mighty Lord. We're grateful that he is in control, and we want to surrender the control of our life and our church to him. Let's